Hello and welcome to the IT Governance Podcast for Friday the 10th of February 2023. Later on, we'll continue with our series of excerpts from our webinars on the importance of implementing layered defences to secure your organisation from cyber attacks, as Alan Calder explains the fourth stage in our cyber defence in-depth framework, response. But first, here's the news. New research from the consumer organisation Witch has found several of the country's biggest banks have basic security vulnerabilities on their websites and apps that are putting consumers at risk of falling victim to fraud. With the help of Red Maple Technologies, Witch tested the customer-facing security systems of 13 current account providers from September to November 2022, following news that nearly 30,000 cases of remote banking fraud were reported to the industry body UK Finance in the first half of last year. It rated the banks across four categories for their online banking and app security, login, navigation and logout, account management and encryption. Virgin Money got the lowest scores for online and app banking, 52% and 54% respectively, after Red Maple Technologies found six outdated Virgin Money web applications which had potential vulnerabilities, according to which the bank noted minor vulnerabilities on three and said these will be corrected. Which was also concerned about TSB, which scored 57% for its app, the second lowest, but got a slightly higher score of 66% for its online offering. Last year's highest performer, HSBC, was in second place this year, with a score of 80% for its online banking security and 82% for its app security, close behind Starling, which scored 82% for its online banking security and 80% for its app security. Sam Richardson, the deputy editor of Which Money, said banks should not be leaving these open doors for scammers to exploit and must up their game to protect their customers properly. By making improvements, such as blocking weak passwords, banks can take an important step in preventing unscrupulous fraudsters from attempting to steal money and personal data from consumers. The Lockbit Ransomware Group, which claimed responsibility for a cyber attack on the financial firm Ion Cleared Derivatives on the 31st of January, says a ransom has now been paid. According to Reuters, Lockbit made the claim via its online chat account on Friday the 3rd of February, but declined to clarify who'd paid the money, saying it had come from a very rich, unknown philanthropist. The amount of money supposedly paid is also unknown. Lockbit said there was no way it would offer further details. Ion declined to comment. The incident led to severe disruption in the City of London, affecting trading and clearing of exchange-traded financial derivatives and causing problems for scores of brokers, Reuters reports. It's easy to see why Ion, or a mysterious philanthropist operating on its behalf, would consider paying the ransom, but doing so is sadly unlikely to be the end of the matter. First, the recovery process will be expensive, disruptive and time-consuming. According to the trading industry publication The Trade, Ion plans to build new infrastructure for its derivatives platform rather than risk returning to the hacked systems. Second, the risk of further attacks is heightened. As the Financial Conduct Authority points out, known payers are often targeted again. Moreover, ransomware groups nowadays more often than not exfiltrate victims' data before encrypting it, thereby strengthening their bargaining position when it comes to extorting money. In the case of Ion, who knows what data the criminals could have accessed and what they might do with it. Third, the authorities discourage the payment of ransoms, so Ion could still potentially face regulatory action. 
In July 2022, the NCSC, National Cyber Security Centre, and the ICO, Information Commissioner's Office, issued a joint letter to the Law Society reminding the legal profession not to advise their clients to pay up if they fell victim to ransomware attacks. It has been suggested to us, the letter said, that a belief persists that payment of a ransom may protect the stolen data and or result in a lower penalty by the ICO should it undertake an investigation. We would like to be clear that this is not the case. It continued, For the avoidance of doubt, the ICO does not consider the payment of monies to criminals who have attacked a system as mitigating the risk to individuals, and this will not reduce any penalties incurred through ICO enforcement action. Finally, an MP has told the BBC that his emails have been compromised after he fell victim to a spear phishing attack. In January, Stuart MacDonald, the SNP Member of Parliament for Glasgow South, opened an email attachment ostensibly from a member of his staff. When he clicked on the document, it brought up a login page for the email account he was using. He entered his password, but the document was blank. When he asked the staff member about it later, they said they hadn't sent it, but had been locked out of their email account. The MP contacted the NCSC, which coincidentally was planning a security advisory about a hacking group known as Seaborgium, which was carrying out targeted attacks like this against politicians, activists and journalists. According to the BBC, the same group is believed to be behind the hack of Mr McDonald's account. Mr McDonald told the BBC he decided to go public to warn others of the risks and limit the potential damage. If it is indeed a malicious state-backed group, he told the BBC, then in line with what I've seen elsewhere, I expect them to dump some of the information online, and I can expect them to manipulate and fake some of that content, and I want to get out ahead of that to ensure any disinformation attack against me is discredited before it's even published. The government hasn't formally accused Russia of being behind the Seaborgium attacks, but many in the cybersecurity community have linked the group to Russia's intelligence services. You can find out more about phishing attacks and how to mitigate them on our website at itgovernance.co.uk slash phishing. That was the news. Now, continuing in our series of excerpts from our webinars on cyber defence in depth, Alan Calder explains the fourth stage, responding to incidents. So, cyber incident response. The first thing is to accept that you're going to need a cyber incident response process. The second thing is to accept that working out how to respond when you're in the middle of an incident is just not sensible. Uh, you don't have time. If you, you know, to take a, a, an example of a, of, a, of a client of ours with a, um, a, an IT team of some two or three people uh, dealing, supporting uh, operations across a number of uh, countries and centers, had a major ransomware attack, the IT team then found itself deluged dealing with inquiries from people saying, this system's gone down, what do I do about that? How do I deal with the other thing? What do we tell this client? They don't even have time to begin to think about how to deal with, uh, with the incident itself because just the repercussions of the incident were so significant. And, and that's one of the key things that you've got to remember as you think about incident response. The more you can prepare and plan an incident response, uh, the more you can operate, you can do tabletop exercises to test them out. So you increase your chance of successfully coping with uh, an incident when it hits. The median dwell time in uh, Europe, Middle East, Africa has increased from 54 days in 2019 to 66 days in 2020. Um, that's quite a long time for hackers to be inside your uh, system. 28% uh, incidents uh, were found within a week. Incidents, though, um, were ongoing for three years. People just didn't discover them. Imagine the damage that an, an attacker can do in that kind of time period. 
Half of businesses, a quarter of charities have had a cyber attack in the last 12 months, higher among medium and large businesses than amongst others, but according to the UK government cybersecurity breaches survey, it kind of just goes on. 44% um, of UK consumers say they'll stop spending with businesses that have a security breach. 41% um, say it won't be temporary, we'll never go back to them. Of course they do sooner or later, um, but nevertheless there's a significant impact on revenue as a result of a cyber breach. And, and on average organizations spend just under three million pounds recovering from a security incident. People often say to me, how much should we spend on cyber security? And the answer is probably on average just under three million pounds because um, that expenditure should save you from breaches on an ongoing basis. Whereas if you have a breach, uh, you've still got to pay for the breach and then you've got to spend the money to stop it happening again. Otherwise it happens again. Criminals know that you're vulnerable. They come back. We have instances of uh, organizations being hit uh, by the same set of cyber criminals once a month for several months. Um, uh, the same vulnerability being exploited by two or three gangs within half an hour of one or another. You know, this is, it's a, it's a serious, seriously dangerous place, the internet. So cyber incident response, the steps that you can take to resolve, <coughs> resolve or mitigate an information security incident, uh, which includes trying to get back to normal operational conditions uh, within a uh, given time period. That's what incident response is about. So how do you go about it? As I said, think about the, the size of the challenge you're dealing with. Will your organization be next? Should you, do you need an incident response plan? What should it cover? Should it cover just the possibility of a phishing attack or do you need to deal with uh, voice phishing, vishing? Uh, what about uh, confidential documents or, um, uh, or, or, or USB sticks, which have been left somewhere that a person finds? Um, what about malware downloaded to somebody's browser? What about somebody uh, using a corporate device working from home, letting somebody access a, um, a game site, which also happens to be infected with malware? So many different ways in which uh, people could get themselves in trouble. And your incident response planning should build out from each of those scenarios. So your typical incident response process, therefore, starts with an incident. What is it that has happened? Um, you, having detected it, you need to have a mechanism for reporting it. So a member of staff who says, ah, this is happening, needs to know how to report it. And they need to know that reporting it's a good thing. They need to understand that not reporting it is a bad thing because not reporting it means it has a chance to propagate. They shouldn't be going, ah, oh, I shouldn't have done that, I'll get into trouble, I'm not going to tell anybody, let's hope it goes away. Because then it goes away and hides in the network uh, for 50, 60, 80 days and does a lot more damage. They need to go, okay, I made a mistake. I need to own up, need to tell people right now, and you need to encourage that. If you are encouraging, if people report the assessment, then you can do triage. You can, you can go, okay, what is this thing? How is it acting? What steps do we need to take? Is this really serious? Do we need to shut down the network? We just need to deal with an individual device. And if you've prepared, if you've planned how to do that, you can go very quickly, ah, oh, it's one of those, this is what we do. We've already worked out how to deal with it. We know what steps to take, we can take it. So responding, um, stopping the incident, uh, eradicating it, recovering business operations is, is the step after that. Because then the kind of loop, have we resolved this? Uh, is it sorted? If not, what else do we need to do? And then you should be 
working out what you can learn from. In other words, how can we improve our incident response process uh, to make sure that this particular type of incident or incidents generally uh, we deal with better in the future? You should, um, you should be doing incident response tabletop exercises, testing out plans, and you should be treating a real-life event as obviously yet another test in the plan, but you should be making sure that you learn from it. You feed that back into getting an ever more robust, resilient incident response process in place to help. So how do you get, broadly speaking, um, incident ready, cyber incident ready? If you're saying to yourself all the time, are we ready for the next cyber incident? I'll tell you that's, uh, that's a pretty typical refrain from me and has been for some time. Uh, does the organization know what normal looks like as distinct from what, uh, what an attack looks like? Because there's a, a level of attack going on which is normal. Um, there is a level of phishing emails coming in, which is normal. Uh, we have to allow emails to come in because we need to communicate with people. So do we know what normal looks like? Have we taught people how to deal with what normal looks like in a way that keeps the chance of, uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of an incident down? Have we defined roles and responsibilities in terms of incident response? That's a pretty critical uh, issue. Have we given the incident response team appropriate authority to do whatever they might need to do uh, at when dealing with an incident? Have we worked out what the escalation process might be and who, who they escalate, what kind of incident to? Um, have we worked out where the borderline is between a cyber incident and something which is a data breach? Uh, how do we know that we'll be able to comply with our data breach, our UK GDPR obligation to record how we respond to a data breach? Have we built that into our testing? Are we testing our response processes? Are we learning from them? Do we have a steady month in, month out? We test this plan this month, we test that plan next month to make sure that we are ensuring they are continually robust. Do we have an internal communications process to ensure that everybody's on the right page, that when you know, we used to do this when everybody worked from the office. You'd have a, a fire alarm test once a week or once a month, as the case might be. Does the alarm work? Does everybody know how to congregate and the uh, the assembled points? You need to be doing exactly the same around the cyber breach because while the building might not be on fire, your system is not functioning anymore. People need to know what to do next. You need to know how to talk to customers. You need to know how to talk to the press. You need to know how to talk to people whose data is affected. So all of those are part of thinking about how do you get to be cyber incident ready. So let's assume you've done that. Um, now you want to be putting in place a set of actions, a set of steps. And this 10 step uh, checklist is, uh, is a good starting point. Do you have staff adequate to deal with your cyber incidents? As you're thinking about we need to have less staff, perhaps. This is the time you also need to be thinking about we need to have enough staff to deal with cyber incidents because we're going to have them. Uh, have we clearly defined roles and responsibilities around dealing with cyber incidents? Awareness training across the business. Have we made sure that there is um, appropriate training for the incident response team to recognize and deal with advanced threats? Have we formalized our response processes? Uh, have we improved vulnerability management? vulnerability scanning first level of cyber defense in depth? Are we uh, doing triage, identifying which vulnerabilities need to be tracked and putting them in place? Do we have a formalized incident response workflow? 
do X, then we do Y, we track it like that. That's an important part of giving people um, some certainty in terms of response, but also in terms of enabling you to work out where improvements can come post-incident. What type of monitoring do we have uh, in place across the network, but also monitoring in terms of how we respond and how we deal with issues? How do we do a forensic analysis after we've dealt with the immediate challenge to work out precisely what happened and therefore precisely what we need to do to uh, deal with the incident? And how do we, thinking ahead, what kind of threat intelligence can we get, do we get, uh, that helps us uh, prepare for longer-term cyber threats? No point being able to deal just with today's. If when tomorrow's come, it's much bigger and you weren't expecting it. So you need to have um, ongoing, updated cyber threat intelligence. When dealing with a data breach, you really want to be the source of the news. The, the, the history of data breaches is full of organizations saying to an inquiring member of the press, no, 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 we haven't been breached, of course not, we're always safe, and then discovering after the news has been broken by uh, one or more third parties that actually they have been breached, and they're then on the back foot having to admit it and trying to play down the size of the breach. You really want to be in PR terms on the front foot. You want to be talking to the appropriate world, the world that's in scope, who needs to know about your data breach. Um, you need to be able to talk to them, tell them what you found, what you're doing about it in a way that enables you to minimize the repercussions of the breach and manage it yourself. You need to be very clear about who you need to notify. If personal data is affected, you may well need to notify the ICO. So you need to have worked out how to do that. Um, we do that for a lot of our customers in GRCI law, for instance, we uh, deal with data breaches. It means that when we go to the ICO and say this client files has a data breach, the ICO knows that we know how to report a data breach. So um, we were able to get on with that in a robust and effective way. Um, you need to be willing to fix the problems that you identify. It's no good saying, well, no, no, we were perfect. Uh, we don't know how they got in. They got in because you weren't perfect. And you need, therefore, to take steps to deal with it, fix it, and make sure it doesn't happen again. Because, like I said, cyber criminals will come back. Uh, they, they expect you not to fix breaches, not to fix vulnerabilities quickly. You need to go, okay, we've been breached. Bad us. Let's get it fixed as fast as we can. Let's uh, block that possible ingress into the organization and be transparent with everybody. It happens. This is, this is the world of uh, being, uh, uh, this is the digital world. Stuff like this happens. You need to be open, transparent. Uh, that's not the same as telling people what happened when you're still trying to work it out. It's perfectly fine to say, we are working it out. Uh, this is where we're at. This is where our next report will be. Um, uh, you might not want to encourage cyber criminals to come after you because you say, we've been breached. This is what we're doing. So you can manage news flow, but you want to be on the front foot. And knowing how to do that, again, comes back to preparation, uh, having the right people in place, the right resources, and, and the plan to deal with the, uh, the messaging. You'll find whether you talk to your lawyers or any other lawyers, the basic uh, guidance on ransomware attacks is don't pay the hackers. That just encourages them. Sometimes everybody recognizes there's nothing else you can do. It's that go out of business because you just didn't have the right uh, backup in place. You couldn't rebuild the systems. You couldn't cope. Uh, but wherever you can, don't pay the ransom. There are a growing number of countries now moving to make paying ransom for uh, cyber ransomware attacks illegal. Uh, your 
um, your insurance, your cyber insurance might cover it, but it might not cover the size of the uh, ransom plus the cost of recovery, plus the cost of putting in place the defenses you should have in place. So um, just think about the cost. Don't wait to notify the public. Those people are affected, tell them there has been a breach, tell them what you do know and is safe to tell them, tell them when your next update will be. Uh, and in other words, don't make definitive statements until you actually know what the facts are. You don't want to be found out for having uh, said definitively there's only 43,000 accounts compromised and it turns out there's 85,000 compromised. You want to be really, really clear, even if that means you say, folks, we're only going to tell you the answers in two days when we have finished checking. So manage the outbound news flow really tightly. It's a critical part of being on the front foot dealing with cyber incidents. And you need to embed your incident response process, fundamental part of the fourth layer of a cyber defense in-depth strategy. It needs to be embedded inside your organization. And that means documented procedures. You mean a, a top-level uh, corporate policy, documented procedures which set out uh, how to deal with individual incidents uh, which have been tested with the people who are working with them. Um, others get escalated. Who does triage? What the principles are around triage? Uh, uh, and, and all of that should increasingly be linked to critical services. So do you know what your critical services across the business are? Have you asked yourself how long you can operate with a particular service or platform not being available to customers? Those are key parts of thinking about what your incident response process should look like. And so there needs to be a link between the incident response processes and your business continuity planning. For a long time, business continuity planning focused primarily on um, physical disruptions to business, you know, the kind of fire, flood, uh, um, pandemic, all of those kinds of areas. Um, what do we do if we can't access our business premises? For the last few years, increasingly, business continuity planning has needed to encompass uh, technological systems as well. What happens if our cloud provider uh, is unable to provide services because they've been flooded, they've been overloaded. Uh, what happens if uh, if our main system it goes down with a malware attack? How do we get goods out of the door? How do we provide services to our customers? And so the link between incident response and business continuity should become increasingly tight inside the organization. And so uh, as you think about that, you should be thinking about this piece of malware that somebody's downloaded on their home device how does that relate to uh, the possibility of us having to uh, escalate to a full business continuity plan and roll out uh, a business continuity plan, which ensures that a whole team or a whole division is able to continue providing services to customers in spite of the fact that that malware has propagated from that device right the way across the whole of the division's devices and has got into uh, our core services as well. So, um, business continuity planning therefore becomes a key part of your fourth level of cyber defense in depth. Uh, you've got to make some assumptions about which systems are critical. Uh, you've got to uh, work out who owns those, who are the business owners of those systems or platforms. You've got to work out how long you can operate without them, what the minimum acceptable period to uh, uh, normal recovery is, what a a, a minimum level of tolerable uh, activity looks like. Uh, and you've got to get those clearly documented. And then you've got to work out how do we get from losing the system back to this kind of minimum uh, 
acceptable level of service and how do we get back up to full operating level quickly? What are the things we need to do? What's the preparation we need to have in place? What kind of backups do we need? All of those are components of the planning. And that then follows over into capabilities. What capabilities do we need to have to be able to restore ourselves? Do we, do we have trained incident responders? Do we have people who know how to report data breaches? Uh, do we have people who can rebuild the system? Probably not is the answer to a lot of those, which means do you have contacts with uh, or preferably contracts with organizations who can provide those kinds of services uh, on a call-off basis? Because you know, if half a dozen organizations get breached, those organizations who have pre-contracted recovery service um, relationships with organizations will get served much more quickly than the ones who don't. So what kind of capabilities have you got? Um, what are your strategies for areas where you don't have a capability in place? How do you document all of that? Thinking through the link between incident response, business continuity, disaster recovery is a key bit of building your fourth level of cyber defense in depth. So just you know, looking at the business continuity plan um, overall, uh, your business continuity plan is like part of your overall uh, governance framework. Uh, the business continuity that's dealing with uh, disruptive analog uh, world uh, issues should be dealing with digital world issues, responding to disruptive incidents right the way across uh, the area in which you're operating. You should have a recovery time objective for each of the key systems and platforms inside the uh, organization. You should have clarity about uh, um, how the people who are going to use the technologies access the support processes, define roles and responsibilities, and then an activation, a trigger process that enables um, the uh, um, incident response and business continuity to be escalated at appropriate levels as and when it needs to be, because you only want to escalate as much as you need to. Uh, you don't want to over-escalate, but then you don't want to under-escalate. So you kind of need to plan that uh, out. How do we recover services? What's our response through media? What's our response to staff? What's our response to customers and to regulators? How do we prevent further loss as we deal with the disruption? If our IT system is down. If our IT team is hard work trying to recover that, they don't have time to deal with security incidents on the unaffected part of the network, which means we could have challenges there. How do you deal with those? Those need to be thought out. And of course, come the end of an incident, stand down uh, and lessons learned. The business continuity plan should be a highly structured uh, element in your governance framework. And ISO 22301, the management standard for business continuity, gives you exactly that. It's a standard written in exactly the same format as other ISO IEC standards. In other words, the key clauses are clause 4 through 10. It can integrate with other management systems. Um, and it, it, it talks about evaluating the business continuity risk environment. It's an extension to the risk assessment that you do for cybersecurity. But what it does is it looks at um, what the systems are, uh, what the um, operational model might look like, what your supply chain markets might uh, look like, how your technology base is going to be affected in the organizational structure, because those are all going to be impacted quite significantly as you put together a business continuity plan. Encourages you to do an audit of your current capabilities. What can you currently handle? How do you currently assess uh, capability? 
Um, do you have a proper program? What are the gaps in it? Uh, and out of that, uh, out of that gap analysis comes an assessment of where you have uh, um, inadequacies around business impact analysis, strategy, uh, incident response, and having compared what you currently do to what ISO 22301 sets out, you can use that gap analysis uh, to develop a prioritized strategic roadmap to build business continuity integrated with incident response inside your organization. So a typical approach to dealing with any management standard, take the standard, compare it with what we're doing, produce a gap analysis, from the gap analysis, produce a prioritized plan for implementing those aspects that will bring you first the biggest uh, value for the organization and then fleshing it out over time. But uh, the faster you can get clear about what your critical systems are, how you recover them, the faster you can begin taking action to deal with them. But of course, ISO 22301 is part of a broad range of uh, services that IT governance uh, supplies. So we can do an ISO 22301 health check. Most organizations are doing something around business continuity and an ISO 22301 health check will go, okay, this is the standard, look at what you're doing. Um, this is all of the good things you're doing. Here are the areas where you could afford to do better. A health check and a gap analysis are very similar. Gap analysis giving you a very specific set of steps to take that enable you to identify um, how you can uh, prioritize bringing your business continuity management system into compliance with ISO 22301. We have a document kit. For smaller organizations, we can even do it for you. We can put together an out of the box and implement uh, a fast track ISO 22. 301 business continuity management system. But we can go further than that. Um, it's not just about business continuity. As I said, the biggest challenge for organizations really is dealing with cyber incident response. And I almost have the view that if you've got continual vulnerability scanning, continual phishing update, training, cyber essentials, train cybersecurity staff, uh, the, the critical thing that you've got to have is a working cyber incident response process because then you're in with a chance. You know you're going to be breached. You've taught people how to report a breach. If you've got a process for capturing and dealing with that breach, then you've got a chance of survival. You can capture, do triage, work out what to do, handle it and get more and more robust and strong uh, as you go. So you can, through uh, IT governance, GRCI law, you can get an incident response retainer. You can have a retainer where uh, we'll help you make sure you've got the necessary policies and processes in place to deal with a cyber incident. Um, we can help you simply deal with a data breach after you've had a, a breach. We can, uh, we have a 24-7-365 um, readiness assessment. We can help you at any time. Um, sorry, have a readiness assessment. We can come and help you at any time, look at what you need to do, but we can provide a response on a, two, six, on a 365 24 7 basis. You can uh, call us, email us and say, we've had a breach, we need urgent help, and we can deploy an incident response team to do that. And all of that data is on the GRCI law uh, website for the 365-24-7 uh, response time. Um, we can even enable you to attend a training course on the basics of how to put together an incident response management uh, uh, structure. So there's a broad range of products and services available through uh, IT governance and through GRCI law, which enable you to get yourself into the right kind of place to have a robust, resilient business continuity management system. And, and the NCSC is increasingly talking 
about cyber resilience as being what organizations need to do. They've come up to come online recognizing that simply defending against a cyber breach is not enough. It has to be defense in depth. You have to be resilient and able to cope with the fact uh, that you're going to be breached to be able to deal with the breach and get up and, and, and fight back. And keep up. Thank you, Alan. That's it for this time. As ever, you can get in touch with us either by leaving a comment on the blog or via Twitter at ITGovPod, that's my account, or at ITGovernance, and we'll return in a fortnight. Until then, our archive is on SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts, and you can find everything you need to implement and maintain cybersecurity defence in depth on our website, itgovernance.co.uk. Music